Blog Talk Radio. All right, everyone, welcome to another edition of Theology Matters with the Palous. I'm your host, Devin Palou, and today we are going to be uh, having a special debate edition of Theology Matters as we are going to look at a dialogue on apologetic methodologies. Um, let's see, the last, I want to say, I don't, it might not have been the last show we did, but the one before that, uh, we also did a discussion on this issue with uh, our friend Cy Ten Bruggenkate and uh, Nathaniel Taylor. So if you guys go to our Facebook page, uh, that's Theology Matters with the Palouse at, uh, on Facebook, you can find all of the old archives. We've done numerous debates with Roman Catholics, with atheists, with Mormons. A um, lot of different shows. We've been doing the show for almost four years now and uh, have tried to cover a lot of topics. We cover mainly theological and apologetic issues. And today our guests have both been on the show before. And let me introduce you to them. Adam Tucker is the Director of Missions and Evangelism at Southern Evangelical Seminary. He is an apologetic instructor. He has served as interfaith uh, evangelism specialist with the North American Mission Board and has uh, and as campus director of Ratio Christi at University of North Carolina at Greensboro. Adam's been on the show several times and uh, have done kind of like a grill the apologist type of show with him and, and ask him all kind of questions, and Adam always does great. Our second guest is uh, Fred Butler. He is a Bible teacher and apologist. He's a graduate of the Master's Seminary and volunteer coordinator at Grace to You Ministries. And as I was telling Fred, I don't think anybody has impacted my life uh, as far as the preaching ministry more than John MacArthur uh, in his ministry. Just uh, nothing but uh, respect for Dr. MacArthur. Uh, he also runs the blog Hip and Thigh, uh, as well as the website Fred's Bible Talk. And Fred has been on the show before as well. And we did a show on the King James only, uh, onlyism. <laughs> and uh, he's, he's been a good friend and uh, just a, a good guy. So, Adam and Fred, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. All right, so what we thought we would do, folks, uh, those who normally have tuned in and have seen how we do these debates, what we normally do is have the guys uh, prepare three questions each, and being that it's a two-hour show, um, have them ask um, a question, and there's a 15- to 20-minute dialogue, and then the next person will ask the question, and we just kind of run through that until the show runs out. Um, you know, if these guys are up to it, I wouldn't mind doing another show down the road where we could have people call in. Uh, it's just I don't normally like to do that on the first show just because it, it's a big issue we're dealing with, and it takes away time from from the guys that are, you know, very knowledgeable about this. We want, want to give them as much time as they can. So with that being said, I'm going to shut up and get out of the way. I'm going to have uh, Adam talk about what is classical apologetics and why it matters. Uh, Adam, if you could do it between uh, three to five minutes, and then we will have Fred do the same. Sure. Well, again, thanks for having us, and uh, Fred, glad you're here. Good to be with you. Uh, classical mm -hmm. apologetics is uh, sometimes confused with uh, what's known as evidentialism, 
uh, evidentialism being um, maybe, for example, someone would appeal strictly to evidence for the resurrection and try to argue for the whole of Christianity from that one piece of evidence, uh, namely proving the, the resurrection. Classical apologetics, <clears throat> slightly different uh, in, in that it really uh, builds an entire case from the ground up uh, for the truthfulness of Christianity as a whole. So uh, it essentially starts uh, from uh, sense experience of sensible reality uh, and with the fact that we can know truth, understand the nature of truth, uh, these sorts of things, and argues uh, from many different veins for the existence of God, uh, the possibility of miracles, and then moves on to, to showing the Bible uh, that we have is both accurately copied and uh, actually true in, in what it uh, reports. Uh, and then it moves on to showing that uh, Jesus claimed to be God, he proved to be God via the resurrection, we get an argument for the resurrection. Uh, and ultimately concludes in the fact that Jesus is God and anything uh, that he says is true, given what we already know from the nature of God uh, and, and the law of non-contradiction. So by implication, anything uh, Jesus says Christianity is true, the Bible is true, and so by implication, anything opposed to it must be. So really, it, it builds a step-by-step case uh, just from uh, the, the beginning point of sensible reality. Uh, for the truth of Christianity as a whole. Uh, Richard Howe, who I think the three of us are very familiar with, uh, one of my Mm -hmm. professors and one of my mentors, uh, defines it this way, that classical apologetics is characterized by three levels of demonstration, philosophical foundation, the existence of God, and the truths of Christianity. The order is deliberate as the first level makes the second and third steps possible, and the second step makes the third step possible. Uh, So we're certainly uh, not saying that someone uh, has to or can only be a Christian, uh, only place their faith in Christ if they come uh, to a belief in the death and resurrection of Christ as payment for their sins via the classical apologetic method. Uh, That is not at all uh, the claim being made. It's simply saying that we share reality uh, in common with everyone as human beings, and from that shared reality, whether we start with a rock or a tree or a person or a shoe, we can build a case for the fact that God exists. He has a very specific nature, and from that, uh, build the case for Christianity as a whole. Again, looking at the uh, evidence for the trustworthiness of the Bible, uh, the, the fact of the resurrection, and concluding that Jesus actually is God, and he is an authority, he is the authority, and whatever he says is true, he says the Bible's word of God, so anything close to it, like I said earlier, is necessarily false. All right, thank you, Adam, and uh, Fred, I'll kick it to you, take a few minutes, talk to us about uh, presuppositional apologetics. Sure, sure. Well, I... uh... I don't consider myself to be an expert on presuppositional apologetics. I've read a lot of, um, of Van Til's key works in the area, but, you know, honestly, he is difficult and brutally hard to read. And that's because he's primarily Dutch, and um, most of his stuff was translated from Dutch into English. So while my understanding of biblical apologetics, presuppositionalism, kind of comes from the second generation of 
uh, individuals that were trained by him, like Greg Bonson and uh, John Frame and uh, some of the guys at Grace Theological Seminary, um, some of the guys at TMS and the prof, at profs. And, um, you know, just kind of what I've learned at Grace Church and what's taught in the pulpit. Um, but basically, the idea with presuppositionalism is that you're it's going to engage, hope to engage worldviews uh, of unbelief uh, and, and basically bring it into contact with, or I guess you could say a challenge with, uh, with um, biblical Christianity. And you begin with the totality of a Christian worldview. So basically, we understand what the Bible says about God being our creator, um, what it says about sinners and them being created in the image of God, but because of sinners, being, being sinners, they suppress that truth. They don't want to have anything to do with it. And every individual in existence, wherever they are, from Lawrence Krauss, the astronomer, to Glenn Beck, the Mormon, depending on what scale they are in belief, they all have presuppositions that they bring, unquestioned axioms that kind of shape their world, how they understand reality. And all of that is, according to Scripture, in rebellion against God and who he is. And when you are trying to engage those individuals, there's not going to be one you know, particular set or some silver bullet presentation per se, because every person is different whenever you engage them. But my goal in engaging the lost is to just um, challenge their core presuppositions. What is it that's causing you to think about things, you know, the way you do? Show them how that is contrary to what God has told them and what they are as a creator, what they are as a created being and that they need to come to Christ, that they need to be, they need to repent of sin, they need to have their their lives changed by Christ. Um, I don't try to prove God to them, per se, because I believe every person has immediate knowledge of who God is. That's what Scripture tells us. And so when you engage them, you know, my, my goal is to just get them to, you know, through the help of the Holy Spirit, of course, get them to open their eyes and see the truth of, Christianity and see who Christ is, and you bring them to a, um, a saving understanding, or you let the Holy you bring the gospel bear upon them so they can come to a saving understanding of what uh, Christianity is. Um, there's obviously different permutations of presuppositionalism. I'm not completely in agreement of, say, for example, Scott Oliphant's view that you got to start with sort of the covenantalism, the covenant theology, and and everything kind of has to come from that theological grid. Um, right. I think everyone, would just, it's just the basic idea is that we think of interacting with sinners according to what the Word of God tells us about who God is, what sin is, what sinners, how sinners behave, and you address those issues based upon that theology that you've drawn and put together from the exegesis of Scripture. That's basically how I understand de- dealing with presuppositional apologetics. Okay, wonderful. And that's a, that's a good outline, and I appreciate you saying there's different stripes and flavors of presuppositionalism. Uh, I was going through uh, Rob Bowman and Ken Boa's book, Faith Has Its Reasons, a little earlier, which is a, a great book, uh, talking about just the different apologetic methodologies. I think it does a fair job. Uh, just before we jump into this debate, I uh, just want to say up front, both uh, both Fred and Adam are, are dear brothers, and uh, I, I know Fred loves the Lord, and I know he loves the lost, 
and I know the same with Adam. Is Adam is a colleague of mine. We we work together. We do ministry together. Um, he's one of my best buddies. But this issue matters. And Fred, you had wrote a blog post a while back. Uh, I think you and Adam had had a bit of a discussion. Uh, it was called Apologetic Methodology in a Nutshell. Now, I don't read this to uh, to shame you or anything like that, because I don't think you're ashamed of it, or you you wouldn't have wrote it. But I wanted, I think this is, it shows the importance of why this issue matters. Um, you say, as, as harsh as this may sound to some, perhaps even many, I think evidentialism is neither God-honoring nor biblically based, nor theologically yeah. sound. I say that because proponents who advocate evidentialism are merely attempting to prove the possibility of God's existence and the viability of the Christian worldview rather than proclaim the reality of God and the truth of Christianity. Such an objective dishonors the Lord because evidentialists typically keep the Bible out of the discussion. They believe you have to prove its dependability first, and thus this makes your overall apologetic theologically unsound. So people may be yeah. asking, why does this issue matter? Why are you guys debating apologetic methodology? And I think Adam, you would also say this issue matters. You would you would you would take a strong disagreement with Fred and with the presuppositionalist approach. Uh, and so these issues do matter. Just because it's a, it's a non-essential doesn't mean it's it's non-important. The issue is important, uh, and it shapes really how we we do our evangelism, etc. Uh, so with that said, uh, let's go ahead and move to the questions. Uh, who would like to, to Fred, since you're kind of coming in the lion's den here, uh, as me and Adam are both classical apologists, I'll let you pick. Would you like Adam to ask you the question first, or would you like he to ask can, Adam the first question? He can ask me questions. Go for it. I'm I'm not a snowflake like those people that are debating Ben Shapiro right now. <laughs> All right, that's good. Go ahead, Adam. Ask your first question. Have a 15, 20-minute dialogue, and then we'll go on Fred's question uh, for you. All right. Uh, well, you're very kind, Fred. I appreciate that. Uh, and, again, just to reiterate uh, what Devin said, uh, just for, for the listeners, uh, I certainly consider Fred a brother in Christ, uh, and this is by no means a, a debate about anyone's uh, salvation or uh, desire to serve God and please God and honor God and all that they do or their uh, their their desire to see the lost come to Christ. Uh, in fact, exactly. I'm probably having this discussion because we all have a very strong seed of desire for all of those things and we want to do it uh, the best way possible in the most God-honoring right. way possible. Thus the discussion. So, uh, Fred, I guess my first question would be um, – one, because I'm interested in your answer. I mean, I think I know your answer, but still, uh, the reason I ask is because I'm personally just uh, unclear uh, from the various presuppositional literature uh, that I have read uh, as to if there is a consistent answer to this question in the presuppositionalist camp, for lack of a better word, uh, if there's room for disagreement. Uh, but I think the answer to this question really does um, – affect greatly uh, our, our starting point as far as apologetic methodology goes. So yeah. I would ask, uh, do you think an unbeliever is able to know anything about sensible reality as an, unbe they, as an unbeliever? Yeah. 
well, yes, they do. The problem, however, is what Scripture tells us, is that they suppress that knowledge. So you can argue with a guy, uh, and they're going to probably see something. You're going to tell them, look, this thing is blue. You cannot tell me that this is not blue. But because of the rebellion in their heart against the Lord, because acknowledging this thing is true, has deep implications upon their rebellion against God, (laughs) exposes them for who they are, well, they're going to reject that. They're going to find creative ways to re-explain that information so that they do not have to be accountable to it as far as God is concerned. They want, they reject it. That's the issue. So while it's true that you can argue with somebody, you know, most, most atheists, we don't have a problem with them uh, talking about, you know, the, the issues in the Bible. Um, they don't like, it, it, it's not, a, it's not one that lacks, you know, credibility or, any of those sort of things, it has to do with the fact that they do not like what the Bible tells them and the implications of that scripture because it demands their submission to their creator, which they absolutely reject. So that's what it kind of comes down to. So while they may, because I, I, I probably agree with you, I think we're, we have agreement that men are created in the image of God, they're image bearers. But the issue is, is that that sin has marred that so that they're going to twist reality to shape their little, you know, fortress, as it were, that they says in Second Corinthians chapter ten, that they've built around themselves, and that's how they define reality, and they don't want to have anything to do with God, and so they're going to say, hey, I'm this is what this really means. Um, you can really see that in debates with um, uh, any atheist. All right. Any, anyone hostile to the truth of creation, and you show them proofs of creation, you know, or any kind of things like, look, this thing just can't evolve out of, you know, stardust. They get a, they get irate, they get angry, and then they start to talk about how you're uneducated. You need to go back and read, you know, a dozen Richard Dawkins books or whatever it might be. Um, it, it, it could be any number of issues. Uh, the Mormon Church, for instance, we're probably all familiar with their, you know, the things that the history that this the church is founded on. And when you try to show them the fraudulent nature of that information and that it did not happen in real time, well, they're going to kick against that because the implications of acknowledging that truth is a total, you know, upsetting of their worldview, which would bring them to Christ is the idea when you do that. That makes sense. Uh, yeah, so you would agree that, say, for example, uh, one need not be a Christian in order to be a uh, accomplished brain surgeon, for example. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Because okay. They, because so, they have you have to you have to have you know as human beings you know that that is you know God's created us to function in His world. So, yes, I mean, in order to be a good brain surgeon, you're going to have to, you know, have, you know, know reality and know about the brain. The issue is, is when you begin to address the fact that that brain did not evolve from primordial slime into some kind of monkey creature and eventually broke off in the branches and became mankind, that's where, you, that's where you're going to have them angrily respond to you because the implications of them recognizing the truthfulness of that claim 
is what is going to pierce their hearts. Okay. Yeah, and, and I don't disagree with that. There's there's certainly uh, willful uh, issues out there where somebody is just willfully willfully ignorant of uh, the facts that they just simply choose not to acknowledge. And my confusion comes in uh, from certain quotes from uh, Van Til, uh, even from Bonson. Uh, that that certain I agree the <laughs> Van Til especially it is extremely difficult to understand. <laughs> Uh, but there are certain certainly quotes uh, that at least uh, on face value certainly seem to uh, be communicating the fact that he thinks unbelievers can't think about sensible reality. So I'm glad that uh, I'm glad you cleared that up for me. So well, I, guess well, I would probably related- well, wait, wait, wait. I would say that in his defense, yeah, probably what he has in mind, at least some of the guys that I'm, you know, that I would know who would argue this way, what they're probably trying to say, if you the beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord. If you're going to have genuine, real knowledge about reality, <laughs> about the world, you're going to have yourself submitted to the Lord. That maybe is what they're trying to get across in what they're, you know, when they say that. They're not trying to say that, well, you can't, in order for you to be a, an accomplished pianist or an accomplished anesthesiologist or whatever, uh, you know, I had to cancer surgery 10 years ago, and there probably wasn't a believer anywhere there, down at Cedar sinai As far as I know, they were all Jews, Jewish folks, and um, except for the main surgeon. And, uh, you know, I just, I was very grateful for them. Um, so, I, you know, I, I think probably what they're trying to get across, um, you know, without having to go back and kind of looking at specific examples of what you're talking about in the literature, you know, the idea, I think, what you're trying to get across is like, look, if you're going to have genuine knowledge of God's world, you're going to be submitted to the fear of the Lord. And obviously you and me and Devin, because we're Christians, we're going to be looking at the world much differently than that pink-haired, shrieking atheist woman carrying the mattress around at community college. We have a different total perspective of the way things work, and we see God's providence and his hand at work all the time. And to me, that's true knowledge of the world rather than, you know, just maybe some kind of, you know, one little specialized area. You know what I mean? Sure, yeah, and there there are other things we could say about that, but for, for our purposes, I think that would get us off track. So uh, this isn't my second question, I hope. This is just a follow-up question to the first Um uh, so your your talk of, of worldviews and, and presuppositions that, that people uh, have, and I agree, uh, everyone uh, does uh, view reality with certain presuppositions and that sort of thing. Um, so back to your, your pink-haired atheist uh, example, uh, for instance. So uh, I think you would say that they view the world through a completely different lens to, to – still a uh, illustration from Van Til than mm-hmm. the Christian would. And so the Christian's job is to challenge that paradigm so that they can see reality through the proper lens. Is that is that correct? Well, yeah. But, I mean, our goal is to – she's not going to understand the proper paradigm until she's regenerated and saved. When she's born again – I mean, God, you know, we can sh- we can show someone the proper paradigm, and they can acknowledge it. I, a good example is Anthony Flew, who was an atheist that you know allegedly 
renounced his atheism, I guess, and he was big with Bertrand Russell. He was sort of the the original, um, you know, new atheist types back in the 60s and all that with um, Bertrand Russell and some other guys. And he has allegedly renounced his atheism because he thought that the ID arguments were compelling. But honestly, if he died, he died in his sins when he died. I mean, unless he came to the saving knowledge of Christ, that's pointless. And so, you know, we might challenge – it is true that one of my objectives is to challenge the paradigms of, you know, these uh, – the foundations – uh, the fortresses, as you will, if we want to take some language from Paul in Second Corinthians 10, you know, these individuals, but, you know, we want them to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now, that's ultimately out of our hands because that's God's dealing. But, you know, we my thing is to bring the gospel to bear upon that false reality, to tear those strongholds down with truth and the knowledge of Christ proclaimed so that they will come and... Once that happens, and you're going to totally change in the way that they see the world. Right. So here's my issue. So we we both have the same end goal, right? We want to see them right. come to Christ, obviously. Um, <clears throat> so if, as Ventil says, and I, and I think as you've alluded to, uh, that we're all viewing reality through certain presuppositions, and the unbeliever's presuppositions, as you said earlier, are in rebellion to God. And uh, you said you wanted to challenge their core presuppositions and show them that those uh, that that paradigm, that worldview, whatever term you want to use, is, is contrary to the Bible. And, and so Van Til says uh, that you know you have colored glasses on your nose uh, when you talk mm-hmm. about anything, whether it be sensible reality or whether it be uh, the afterlife. That, that you only talk about it through your uh, your worldview or your your paradigm. So my my issue is, if that's the case, then regardless of what you say to them, if as I understand this to be articulated from the presuppositionalists that I have read, uh, if this is the case that we all view reality through our own paradigms, our own worldviews, then whatever you say to the unbeliever they're going to hear and interpret and understand through that same worldview. Uh, so mm-hmm. even the, the notion of challenging their worldview and their paradigm uh, is in principle impossible to actually uh, affect change in that paradigm because they're just going to hear what you're saying through their own paradigm uh, unless we have something in common that transcends those paradigms that we can then uh, have an actual discussion and dialogue or debate uh, about whose paradigm more closely aligns, uh, aligns to uh, reality. Does that, does that make sense? Yes, it makes complete sense. But I would say in response to that, that what, trans, what transcends that, I guess if you want to call it that, is we're all created in the image of God. And you're right. I mean, we can we can come and argue all we want with an unbeliever, but what we hope on as believers is the fact that, number one, our Lord and Savior told us to go forth and to proclaim the gospel and to make disciples of all men, and that he has promised us the working of the Holy Spirit, and that in through the preaching of the Word of God, the one who hears the preaching and the proclamation of the Word of God 
that is what the Holy Spirit uses to regenerate hearts and cause believers. I, I don't know who's, you know, a, who's a saved individual and who is not. My goal as a believer is to go out. I'm going to challenge your presuppositions, as it were, but, and, but I'm going to trust in the Lord that he will take that conversation, that he will, you know, plant those seeds, that he's going to be the one who's going to water and bring about salvation in someone's life. There's no telling how many people. I've known like a handful of folks that I've <clears throat> talked with in the past, done some kind of, you know, challenge with them or, you know, talked with them about the Lord, brought them to an understanding of the, their need for Christ, brought the law to bear upon their sin, and, you know, they go away angry and spitting and cussing at you. And then five or six years later, you know, you see them around like, hey, you know, remember that time we I hated you and didn't want to have anything? But, you know, God used that. It stuck with me. I didn't want to have – I couldn't get it out of my head. I couldn't get it out of my mind. I needed to have the, you know, whatever it is, and they came to know the Lord. So, you know, I – we we start with the fact that I think you're correct in that we're all human beings, we're create we're image bearers of God. That's going to be our common interaction. We deal with that, you know, person who's, you know, claims that morals are subjective, which most atheists do if you talk to them any length of time. And then when they get irate and angry, when there's some kind of preacher in a scandal or Josh, Josh Duggar does whatever. And then they're all of a sudden absolute with their morality. Well, do you not see the inconsistency? Why is it wrong for <laughs> – I don't understand. Why Why are you subjective over here, but, you know, now all of a sudden you're objective? There's re, is there a reason for that? And then you can kind of start talking to them because they're going to see that. I mean, I think they're going to – like you're saying, they're going to be like, well, you know, because they see reality. They know what reality is. It's just that they're going to – now they're being forced back into the corner now, am I going to be defending, you know, my beliefs, you know, my much-held beliefs, or am I going to actually address, you know, the problem here with my, you know, with my with what I'm saying, you know, the inconsistency? Um, but, yeah, I mean, ultimately it comes down, we're, we need to trust the Lord. We proclaim the Word of God. We trust the Lord and the Holy Spirit to work, take that and work it in the hearts of the lost. Does that make sense? Well, yeah, I mean, I understand what you're saying, um, and, and I do agree to an extent, and obviously I think this, uh, anyone's salvation is uh, ultimately attributed to the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, but I think we would disagree in exactly how that work takes place, uh, and that, I, you know, like I would argue that these encounters and, and the evidence and these sorts of things that we present uh, are the occasion that the Holy Spirit uses to do that work in our lives. But with this notion of uh, sinners suppress the truth, uh, and that which uh, I mean, we can debate what exactly that means, uh, but what I understand it to mean from the presuppositionalist side uh, is this notion of presuppositions that are that are in rebellion to God, and we have to challenge those presuppositions, but. To do so, like I said, uh, simply means they will understand everything we say through the same presupposition they hold. So you said that that preaching the word is what the Holy Spirit uses to bring people to Himself. Mm-hmm. I think that's uh, I think that's correct in Romans ten. Mm-hmm. All is clear on faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. But unless 
someone can understand that word, uh, then we're, we're really punting to some mystical work of the Holy Spirit, I think, uh, at, at that point. And, and what I would argue is that uh, this reality that we all share in common, uh, the underlying aspect of that is uh, the, the basic laws of, of thought and being, like the law of non-contradiction and, and these sorts of things uh, that every worldview shares in common. And that gives us a common ground that we can then actually have these discussions about whose worldview is correct and whose is not uh, without that common ground, which I've heard many presuppositionalists say we have no common ground with the unbeliever. I think Bonson says that. I think Van Til says that. Then I think uh, even Dr. Arthur says that. Uh, if that is actually the case, then I think we are left in this subjectivism and this relativism that results in, well, I'm just going to see everything through my lens, and you can say whatever you want to, you're blue in the face, but I'm going to hear everything you say through my lens. And and so we rule out the possibility of change in principle. Uh, Again, unless you appeal to some mystical work of the Holy Spirit, which I don't think is what you're appealing to, and I don't think that's what we find in the Bible. Well, to some degree, because regeneration is miraculous. I mean, that's a. I mean, I, I believe in miracles. It happens every day when someone is broken in their sin and and they come to Christ. So, in some ways, there is there's. A, I, I I know mystical can be uh, in being someone who is a a stalwart champion of cessationism. I understand that that term can have like a lot of baggage attached to it. But we. I mean, I would hope that we all agree here that the. You know, there is a spiritual dimension to conversion that God's involved in that process, and there's got to be some mystical. There's got to be this, you know, a coming alive in the spirit that the work of the Holy Spirit does. And um, and uh, sorry about that. I had some children interrupting me. Um, <laughs> but I, I was going to ask you though, and I'm probably totally throwing uh, Devin's little schedule here off the loop. Um, Going back to your little comment about laws of non-contradiction, we all share that. Why do you think that is? Can you elaborate on that? Why does all of humanity, you know, share in those common things? This would be actually a great. This hold on. This would be a good segue. (laughs) This would be a good segue if we want. Fred, is that your question? Well, I was just going to ask him to clarify that a little bit, you know. Is like, okay, go mean, ahead, uh, Adam, cl- clarify that, and then uh, we'll go ahead and switch to Fred's question for you, Adam. Go ahead and, and okay. uh, answer Fred's question, and then we'll have Fred ask sure. his question to you. All right, so I'll, I'll be as brief as I can. Um, so essentially the laws of, of logic, really, that's, you know, law of non-contradiction being the, the, the principal law of logic. Uh they just flow from reality. They're, they're what we call first principles of thought and being, is the, the philosophical jargon. Uh, and given that we all share reality and humans all share a human nature, uh, which is a rational nature, uh, we all share in these, uh, in these transcendent truths, if you will, uh, of the laws of logic. It doesn't mean everyone uh, necessarily knows that or understands that or even applies them consistently, uh, but it does mean that they apply to everyone consistently, even if people don't use them uh, consistently. So whether uh, I'm a uh, Christian in America or a Hindu in India, as Ravi Zacharias 
uh, quipped one time, uh, even in India, it's either me or the bus when I go across the street, not both of us. Yeah. Uh, because right. the law of non-contradiction just is part of reality. I'll follow up with some uh, – when I – are we going to move to me asking questions now? I've never done this debate thing before, so this is kind of all new. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm yeah. you ask, uh, ask, uh, ask Adam you know. a question, and then we'll have a 15-20 uh, minute discussion on that, and then we'll go back to Adam – with you, so go ahead, Fred. Okay, and, well, and, uh, well, let's go question. back to what I just let's let's expand on what we're just talking about. Why? I'm, I'm what I'm. I guess what I'm asking at is why do they share those? You know, why is there this sharing of, you know, reality among everybody? I mean, what? Why is that? Why is why is it? Um, there's a reason for that. I believe there's a reason for that. Why would you say there's a what? What's your reason for why the Hindu and in India and the Christian here in the United States share in this reality. Well, is there a source question. for that? Uh, yes. Yeah, De- well, Devin didn't say I had to give answers. He just said you're going to ask me questions. So I, <laughs> this is this is a trick, Devin. Uh, so uh, I, actually, I, I think the question I, I think the question you're asking uh, to answer it is exactly what classical apologetics is. It's a uh, demonstratio quia, arguing from effect to cause. So we we see the, the the effect that hey, there's this thing we've discovered called the law of non-contradiction that uh, we just kind of intuitively know from our experience with sensible reality. We we come to understand this principle, and hey, we all share that in common because hey, look at this, we all share the same reality uh, because we're all uh, and we understand this because we're all human beings, uh, and we share this common human nature. Uh, but all that's, you know, the, the Bible isn't necessarily a logic textbook, but it certainly uses logic and presupposes the fact that people mm-hmm. understand uh, how these things work. And then when it says God is love, it doesn't mean God is not love. Uh, so, it, 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 But those are things we discover from reality. Even having kids, I think, has been the best example of this and just seeing uh, how they uh, – just by the fact, by the virtue of being humans, uh, are able to discern these things from reality. And so then I think your question is, well, why is that? That's exactly what we would argue, uh, use to argue to the existence of of God, and and that these things exist and this reality exists not of itself, uh, it's not self-existent because it changes in all these other reasons. We won't get into it at this particular moment. Uh, and it can't cause itself to exist. So it hasn't always existed because it's not self-existent. Uh, it can't cause itself to exist because, again, that is a contradiction based on the law of non-contradiction that we're talking about. So it must be being caused to exist by something else. And, well, what is that something else? And then we continue to use our reasoning uh, capacities uh, to reason to the, the the fact that something that just is existence itself is currently sustaining everything in existence, and whatever else we mean by God, certainly at least we mean that. Now that doesn't give you the Trinitarian God of the Bible, but it's not meant to. We we just haven't got that far yet, but we have at least shown no, well, atheism's faults and and. Uh, agnosticism's faults and these other types of things, and that's an extremely nutshell version of that uh, of those types of arguments. But that would be the, the general line of thinking. 
Well, we would. I mean, you're obviously not going to say it's those, you know, Prometheus aliens who seeded life on Earth millions of years ago. That's the cause of that. And so we we both we would both recognize that there's got to be something that well, actually, brings I would say about it would be possible for that to be the case. Well, I would too. But um, as an ultimate explanation. Yeah, well, but my I guess my my take on that is like I, I like why is not the Trinitarian God why do must you prove that in order just to what I think everybody just sort of recognizes, hey, there's a creator. <laughs> and the reason why there's laws of logic is because he's logical. He's revealed himself as being the you know, the God who is all knowledge, he's all wise, you know, uh, uh, omnisapient, if you want to take a theological word. And so I would assume, I mean, I would presuppose he's going to be logical. In other, in other words, logic in the world, you know, exists because it has a very, um, it has its very being in the being of God because he's our creator. It seems like to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, it seems like there's got to be some. It seems like you're trying to say that there's, we've got to show all of these philosophical constructs about cause and effect before we can make recognition that, well, that's your proof of your creator right here is because you're thinking logically and you're reacting against that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Does that make yeah. sense? Well, well, yeah, absolutely. So two things. Uh, one, I, I would actually disagree that. With your assertion that most people just uh, assume that this God is logical, actually, I would say most Christians today would assume the opposite, and they would appeal to scriptures out of context that His ways are not our ways, and uh, His ways are higher than our ways, and His thoughts are not our thoughts. And so, the more illogical something is, the more uh, holy a lot of people think it is. Uh, now, obviously, I think they're wrong about that, but but that is their intuitive understanding of what it means. Uh, so I would just challenge your your assertion there. But also, uh, I would say I'm not saying. Uh, well, I, let me rephrase. I'm not the only one saying we argue this way from effect to cause. Um, number one, I, I simply think that's how our knowledge works as human beings. And again. Having kids is the best illustration of this because they don't come out of the womb uh, talking about the Trinitarian God. They see uh, mom or dad or they want food or or whatever uh, the case may be. That is what they know first, and from those things they become able to reason about other things, and then they realize that, hey, this is a flower and this is mom. Mom is different from a flower. And, hey, dad's kind of like mom, and brother's kind of like mom and dad. And so they kind of start forming these categories uh, of things, of types of things. And, and, you know, the reason progresses and progresses and progresses. Uh, And it's from that that we reason uh, to the fact that God exists. And and the reason I say I'm not the only one saying that is I think that's exactly what the Bible says, what Paul says in Romans 1, that from things that are made we know uh, that God exists and we understand his eternality and his uh, divine, whichever divine attributes that happens to listen to that verse, can't remember it off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he says, from the things that are made. That, that's exactly what we're talking about, arguing from effect, things that are made, to causes, God. And, and we reach the same conclusion that you're talking about here, uh, that, that logic exists because God is, 
uh, well, for lack of a better way to phrase it, logic by nature. Uh, he, he is a rational uh, God, just speaking speaking loosely. Uh, but again, that's the case because logic simply flows from reality. That's one of their first principles of thought and being. Well, I would argue that God is being itself, not just a being, but being itself. So it necessarily follows from that, that logic would flow from the very nature of God. Well, you're not saying that babies are born. I think the new one of the new one of the arguments I hear from atheists is like, well, everyone's born an atheist. Are you to arguing <laughs> that they're, you're not saying that they're born an atheist? Because most atheists would say, well, it's an absence of belief. I just haven't seen proof, and I just didn't, and I'm like, well, the fact that you're rationally arguing with me and you know and, and doing all the concepts that you're outlining here, which I would agree with, proves to me that you're created in the image of God. That's what Revelation tells us. You know, God, they they are this way because there's Revelation. But, mm-hmm. uh, but are you telling me, I mean, you know, it seems like to me that all of my kids, you know, as way, as they have grown and have been able to, as they've matured and are able to articulate language, they certainly have a sense of the divine because you can see that in, you know, in the, in the way they wonder about, the world and about things around them, and obviously as believers, we you know direct them to their creator. So I mean, you're not arguing that babies are born atheists, and we have to convince <laughs> them to be to be uh, to be atheists. That's how much you're saying. Right, right, right. Uh, well, yeah, I, I agree. Atheists misuse. Uh, that term, and actually, our mutual friend Richard Hale has a great blog on this of uh, why defining atheism as lack of a belief in God actually leads to the absur- absurd conclusion that theism and atheism could both be true because God could exist and someone could lack a belief in him, which is just uh, yeah. certainly not what an atheist is trying to communicate. So uh, just grammatically, it's uh, atheism without God. So, I mean, it is a... It is a um, actual belief that God does not exist. So lacking a belief and believing that something doesn't exist are two entirely different things. Uh, So I would argue uh, that uh, babies are born as what Aquinas would call tabula rasa, a a blank slate, if you will, uh, not in the sense that anything and everything can happen in someone's mind, but in the sense that as human beings, uh, they have the innate ability to have their intellects, as it were, written upon in certain ways. But the content of their intellects is what they gain from sense experience or from sense experience continue to reason to uh, um, immaterial realities like God, etc. But I, I would agree with you that... Um, I, I think it's just empirically verifiable, not just from children, but just from uh, culture at large, worldwide, uh, through all of history. Uh, it is obvious that a, a belief in a creator uh, comes naturally to us, uh, but mm-hmm. I don't think it's in the sense that it's innate, that we're born uh, with this knowledge that uh, automatically we're thinking, oh, a creator made me. 
No, it's from our experience of sensible reality that we see things can't come from nothing. Therefore, there must be a cause of the something that I see. Uh, right, but right. what I think experience also shows us is that apart from uh, the special revelation of the Bible, we can't, uh, we don't know intuitively, nor do I think can we assume that this creator is the Trinitarian God of the Bible. We know his invisible qualities and attributes to a certain extent, but a very limited extent. And he reveals to us what that precise nature is uh, to the extent that we're able to understand it uh, this side of heaven. Uh, but that's certainly not the Trinity for for uh, a specific example. is not something we could reason to. Uh, so I'm certainly not saying that. Uh, but I also don't think it's something that we need uh, to assume uh, in order to uh, be able to make these types of arguments with people. Hmm. So you're uh, trying to think about um, because I've had this as a separate question, but it kind of plays in here. Is just your your <laughs> views of the <laughs> your views of the noetic effect of the fall. What's your take? You know what I mean when I say noetic effects of the fall? Yes. That there's sure. been when babies are born, I mean, I don't have to train my baby to be a sinner. He's selfish, mm-hmm. manipulative, right. angry, right. prone to violence. If they were a 300-pound man, they'd kill us all dead. You know, <laughs> my four-year-old, right. I've seen fits, you know, would blow you, just blow your mind. And obviously, and it's you. because, you know, she has to share a leg hole with her brother at, you know, the Costco basket. You know what I mean? So it's just, it's, sure. it's, it's, it's just a... You know, while, while I agree with what you're saying with regards to, you know, kids are going to learn these things, it seems that Scripture is telling us that when they come out of the womb, you know, they're doing so, you know, in rebellion against their Creator, um, but they know that that Creator is there when you talk with them. As they're going to get more immersed in the world, and they do what you're saying when you when they realize that teddy bears are soft and blocks are hard and they understand these you know these laws which i think are much more innate because you know they're living in the realities you're talking about i mean mm-hmm. where where exactly are you going to be saying that the noetic effects of the fall are going to be affecting you know a person with regards to how you interact with them with regards to these you know recognizing laws of logic and so forth am i making sense with that question yeah yeah absolutely uh, and just just in case somebody's not familiar with that uh, terminology, is just ha- how sin has affected our ability to think, basically. Uh, um, yeah. So I, I would say the the examples you gave, uh, and I'm with you. I have a five year old and a two year old, and went on the way. So uh, I Ooh. completely understand what you're talking about. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but notice the examples you gave were all uh, maybe we could term moral qualities, moral issues, right? Uh, but the noetic effects of the fall, I think in this case, you're trying to get at more uh, epistemological problems and, and our ability to know things. Uh, so I certainly agree uh, that we are born with a propensity to sin, and nobody has to teach us that. Uh, and I also agree that fact in itself can affect our ability 
to reason properly in that it's very easy for us to deceive ourselves many times and believe what we want to be true rather than where the evidence actually leads. What I don't agree with is that it is impossible for us to know things about reality and to know things about God. I don't think this what uh, Paul talks about in Romans 1 of the, the suppression of knowledge I don't think it's this blanket statement. Sorry, I just got a text if anybody heard the beep. Um, I don't think it's this blanket statement of um, every single unbeliever is every single moment willfully suppressing everything they could possibly know about God. Because if we take that passage in context, then to be consistent, we would have to also say, and someone texted again, uh, we would have to also say that um, those unbelievers would also, uh, every single one of them would be giving in to homosexuality and idolatry and all these other sins that are listed in that passage, which we know uh, is not the case. Uh, and just uh, empirically speaking, we know of atheists who have come to Christ who were atheists for genuine reasons. They were genuinely seeking truth as best as they knew how, were living moral lives as best as they knew how, and were not to the best of their ability anyway, and best of their knowledge, willfully suppressing uh, God out of their lives. In fact, some of them wanted it to be true, and just, or even believers who struggle with doubt. You know, they, they don't want to struggle with this doubt, and, and so I would say they're not willfully suppressing the knowledge, they're just has have these existential crises that they're trying to investigate uh really what's going on here um so i i would agree that there is a noetic effect of, uh, effect of sin but not in the way that i think the presuppositionalists usually uh use that uh such that we just can't properly reason to any facts about god or anything apart from uh, the Holy Spirit, and I'm not talking about coming to salvation specifically. Okay. I'm talking about reason with an unbeliever. Uh, but one 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 thing I would add to that uh, is that just in relation to the fall in general, uh, honestly, I, I, and I know this isn't about that issue exactly, but it does relate in that I think we we've, we've misunderstood that by and large, and that we're the 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 fall, original sin, and the fall doesn't mean that now we're some subhuman, um, completely irrational kind of thing. That that would mean we have a different nature than what God originally created us with. Rather, I think the fall refers to the supernatural grace that Adam and Eve Adam and Eve had prior to the fall that has since been removed so that they fell from an elevated state of grace a mere humanity, and as a mere human, we are much more easily affected by our lustful desires and the desires of the flesh and our environments and all of these sorts of things that contribute to our ability to reason. But it doesn't mean okay. that we've somehow become this sub-rational kind of creature, if that makes sense. Okay, guys, we need to uh, actually move on to the next question if we're going to get them all in. 
<laughs> and what is it, Adam? Is it your turn to ask Fred, I believe? Yes, it is. Uh, I think it is. Let's see. Um, do you think that, and we've gotten into this a little bit, but maybe this will get us a little deeper. Uh, do you think the truth of the proposition God exists is something that can actually be known or must it simply be believed on faith? And two-part question, if it can be known, how does one come to such knowledge? Uh, well, if I understand what you're saying and what you're asking, um, say, ask it again so I can kind of get, I'm kind of, Sure, sure. Uh, or so rephrase it or something so I can make sure I'm okay. understanding you. Right. So is is the truth of the proposition God exists? Mm-hmm. Is, is that something that can actually, that we can say we know, uh, or is it something that we have to believe on faith so we say we believe God exists versus we know God exists? And if if you think we can know that God exists, how does someone come to that knowledge? Um, okay, so yes, God exi- can we know that God exists? Um, do you either believe it on faith or do you believe it on? Well, I would say it seems like to me when I'm looking at um, anthropology as it's outlined in Scripture, again, it comes to men do know propositionally, truthfully, that God exists. Uh, for example, we talked about atheism. <clears throat> and you have a clear statement in Psalm 14.1 where it tells us that, the, you know, the fool has said in his heart that there is no God. And it's not, the idea there is not that he's unconvinced of, you know, because I haven't seen evidence for God, but that he's doing his, he, he rejects God. He doesn't want to have anything to do with him. Um, so, yes, we, there is a, there is an, obviously a salvation, there is obviously a knowledge, I think, what we'd be kind of touching on with, the fact that because we're created in the image of God, that we are human beings that have a creator and we have uh, immediate knowledge of him in our hearts and in our lives that we suppress. Um, so, yes, there's there's that truth. But obviously there is a deeper knowledge that's going to come as the Lord reveals himself by either changing the, when changes the heart of the, belie- uh, the sinner to become one who believes in faith in Christ as we get to know Christ is scripture as we retrain our thinking. It talks about renewing our minds in Colossians and Ephesians and just our need to sort of retrain the way we were once in rebellion against God. And so now we are, you know, loving the Lord and pursuing him. Uh, so, yes. And so how do we get to know that is the next kind as a sub question to that. I mean, uh, uh, well, I mean, I'd say on the one hand, you obviously have the, person who's born into the world and has this knowledge of God because of, again, what we're talking about with regards to where God has put us. He's given us an understanding of his creation and who he is uh, just in the way that we act and live in the world. Um, but also we come to know him, obviously, through Scripture. Um, I don't know if I'm even answering your question now to think about it. Am I even bump, jumping around with what you're trying to no, get at No, you there? are yeah, and you said something earlier that we have immediate knowledge of who God is. What, right. what do you mean by that? Immediate knowledge means that we have, because we're created, we're created beings, there is an immediate understanding of our creator that we have in our hearts. I mean, that's why every society, like we mentioned earlier, 
in the world. Atheism is a little weird fringe uh, wacky doodle group. It's not everybody like this. And you have individuals in every culture that has an understanding of a supreme being. And usually they understand that that supreme being is is far off. It can't be, you know, understood and worshipped. And so then usually they have intermediary beings that there becomes their pantheon of gods, depending on whatever, you know, culture or whatever they're in. It's the way the ancient Near Easterns thought and, and so on. So there is a they do have that immediate knowledge. Immediate knowledge is the idea of kind of what you're talking about, which has been sort of the classic um, understanding throughout Roman Catholicism and other you know, early forms of Christianity. Is that, and, and I think you and I had some debate or discussion on Facebook or something, and you sent me a, um, uh, to, this, uh, to these uh, little proofs or 24 little things with regards to Thomas Aquinas or something, I can't remember. And one of them was really good and succinct, and it kind of it made that clear distinction. And that immediate knowledge is something that you gain that, you know, you learn these things uh, as you get exposed to them, kind of like what you're talking about with your sense experience. Um, you know, my I would say that the sinner, because he understands justice, that because he understands order and logic and all of these things, he recognizes those things, he has an immediate knowledge of who God is. Now, obviously, there's going to be, as God reveals himself in his heart, because he brings him to salvation, and he, you know, reveals to him scripture because he is, um, you know, reveals himself, you know, more fully in the in his revelation, you know, there's going to be a, there's going to be a deepening of that knowledge. But he does have an understanding. And when I, when I talk with an unbeliever, I know that there's, you know, I'm not going to try to argue with him about, you know, why are you in you know, just different forms of logic or whatever. I know that he already kind of thinks that way because he's created in the image of God, if that makes sense. So if if I understood you correctly, because the phone might have just uh, made me misunderstand the, the word you were using. Uh, right. you know, what I was arguing for is immediate knowledge with an M, and I right. think you said because people understand logic and reason and all these things, then they know there's a creator, so they have immediate knowledge of Right, because they're created in God's image, those things are there in their hearts. So, you know, I. Right, so how is that different? How how is that immediate knowledge and not immediate knowledge? Because you're appealing to logic and rationality and all these things. Because it's something I didn't have to prove to them. And I don't have to prove to somebody that um, we want to get it, like, you know, the example, the big bugabear example is, you know, the rape of a child or whatever is wrong. You know, if you're if you've gone to the place to where you're actually your worldview suggests that that is can be an okay thing that happens, you know, it could perpetuate the culture or whatever. Then you need to really rethink your worldview. Most rational, you know, most people like the rational atheists or whatever, you know, they're not going to go that far. They recognize that there's a, you know, a limit to what they're, you know, to what they're claiming and what they believe. And so I. I I seize upon that. It's like, why do you think that's wrong? In your worldview, you shouldn't be thinking that. It doesn't really have a moral category. 
we've just sort of said it's wrong because of society. But what happens if that changes? Does it matter? Well, obviously it does because I think it's in their heart to recoil at such evilness and wickedness because they recognize that. They, they're not in the moral subjectivists as they claim they are because they don't live life that way. Uh, they have locks okay. on their doors. They understand right, right, right. You know, bad people and there's murder. And, you know, if you can't look across the ocean and see what ISIS is doing is extremely vile and have a, a visceral reaction to that, well, I mean, I've got to wonder about your, you know, your views of diversity, you know, or multiculturalism. Or whatever, you know what sure. I mean? Right, right, right. Yeah, but but look at what you're doing. So when you're actually doing apologetics, you're just doing classical apologetics. That's all we're saying. You're appealing to a moral law and saying, well, you've got to account for that morality in your worldview, and the only way to account for it is God. You're arguing from effect the moral law to a cause, God. That's classical apologetics. I'm, I'm not sure where our disagreement is and why one is immediate knowledge and one is Immediate knowledge, as if immediate knowledge is lesser and immediate knowledge is the greater. And but you're doing the very same thing that I'm talking about, arguing from effect to cause. And, and I would also add, given that that is explicitly what Paul says in Romans of how we know God and His invisible qualities and attributes, arguing from effect to cause. Um, where do you find this idea of immediate knowledge? If if you can actually define it in such a way that it differentiates itself from the immediate knowledge of effect-to-cause reasoning. Well, I would say, obviously, because I'm looking at, I'm trying to look at what the scriptures tell me about what it reveals to me about what, how God's created man, how he's created him to function, and, you know, in the way, in the way man is revealed throughout the whole of scripture. Um, I'm trying to dig up that one particular Thing. I can't find it on Facebook. I was going to link over to it, um, but the and, and read it. What I was going to talk about here. I'm seeing if I even have it here. Oh, here it goes. Um. Uh. Come on. But yeah, I just think that there's. Um. um I'm looking at these 24 proofs of uh, you know, this Thomism thing I was telling you about. Um, and he talks about how there's this immediate knowledge, and in fact, I can find it real quick. I'm totally slowing down the the um, podcast here. <laughs> oh, you're all right, man. Take your time. This. I'm okay. Uh, we can have okay. Adam. We can have Adam sing for us or something. The immediate principles. It, it says here faculties of a twofold order: organic and inorganic. I think this is the right one. In which the subject of the organic, in which sense belongs, is a compound. The subject of the inorganic is a soul alone. The intellect then is a factual, intrinsical. I don't know if that's the right one or not. But it talks about the immediate principles of operation are distinct from the soul. They are accidents as the operations themselves. I don't know if that's what I'm looking at. Okay, here we go. I'm totally messing you up. Under the section <laughs> on theodicy, that God exists, we do not know, but by immediate. That God exists, we do not know by immediate intuition nor do we demonstrate it a priori, but certainly a posteriori, that is, by things which are made, arguing from effect to cause, which I think is what you're trying to say, correct? Right. Underneath this little thing here. And what I would say is that I think that men do have an immediate intuition of who God is. And it is because it is demonstrated or proven by the way that they behave themselves. 
they operate under, you know, because they were originally moral creatures before they fell, and they are operating under that intuition that God has given them. And he, and he goes on to talk about yeah, I don't, I don't. I don't mean to cut you. I don't mean to cut you off, but I think you're just equivocating, uh, because you, you're saying they have immediate knowledge in the way that they live. Well, that that seems to be talking about uh, they may hold this belief, whether they admit it or not, or realize it or not, or whatever, because it's demonstrated by the way they live their lives. But that says nothing of the fact of how they came to hold that belief, whether they realize they have that belief or not. What I'm talking about is how they came to hold that belief in the first place. And I think what you're talking about is demonstrating the fact that they have that belief, which is debatable. But even even, even if that's the case, everybody intuitively knows the law of no contradiction because they've understood it since before they could remember. But they may not know that they know it. And so in, or, in order to help them understand that they actually do live their lives according to this principle, we have to give them reasons to think that and explain it to them. Uh, but the law of non-contradiction is, is something that is self-evident to us uh, just from reality, God, sensible reality. God, on the other hand, we don't have direct access to. That's why we reason to the conclusion from effect to cause. So it's a different type of well, thing. You're not so saying it's not that. thing, but it's a different thing that we're reasoning to it's not self it's self evident in itself. Uh, it's self evident to God, obviously, but it's not self evident to us. Whereas the law of non I think it's probably more self evident than you're letting on. I just you know, God, men, you know, God is create. God is create. The reason reality is the way it's reality, the way it works, is because God's created it to be so. And, right. You and that's know, reasoning they, from effect to cause. That's exactly what I'm saying. You're reasoning from reality. To God. That's all yeah, but I'm backgrounding the truth of reality <laughs> in the character of God. Or wouldn't you? You would. You're not saying that reality is a separate, you know, entity separate from God. I mean, it exists because God has made it so, and He's told us He's done so in His Word. I mean, right, and I can also, do. I can also demonstrate that philosophically, just like Paul says I can do in Romans, arguing from creation to the existence of God and his divine attributes. The same thing that, that you're doing every time you try to explain this. It's still classical apologetics, arguing from effect to cause. Regardless you of know, how you I would say it, that it's, it's probably more – you've got the presupposition that this is the way that reality works. And, you know, you, you understand that because as you have built your worldview, understanding of, and built your Christian theology – that's informing the way that you do your, you know, do you, how you engage those subjects is what I would say. I mean, and in, uh, some, in some respects, I understand what you're talking about, but you you've had to start with the, you know, the theology of the, of the Christian faith at some point. I mean, you know, in order to uh, no, I would think that's absolutely false, and that's exactly. I mean, that's what Paul says too. He doesn't say well. Since you have the Bible, now you can see that you can reason from things to God. Now, he's talking about people that don't have any special revelation and says because they have access to reality, they should know that God exists because they can argue from effect to cause. That's, that's, well, that's what he says in Romans 2, isn't it? 
He says that they well, do that, the things that are already written in the law that God's revealed to you because right, you exactly. know, they're that's created in the image is, of God, and that's the way that they function. Right, right. and that's natural law, arguing from effect to cause. They're, they have this moral code. What accounts for that moral code? Well, ultimately, it's God. Again, he doesn't call it. He grounds it in the fact that they're created in such a way. I'm just operating from the, the understanding that when he tells me that the unbeliever, you know, these these societies, you know, live according to Scripture, living according to the Ten Commandments, basically, that uh, even though they don't have any, you know, understanding of who Moses is or whatever, it's because God's yep. created them to be that way. That's the point. So because we all have access to the same reality. We, uh, regardless of our presuppositions, we're able to access the same reality and adjudicate those presuppositions to actually understand the basics of right and wrong. That's what we call natural law uh, because of the nature of humanity, the essence of humanity. And, and from that, we can then reason to the fact that... Yeah, I would probably it. say that natural law, though, is going to be... That, that concept is going to be hampered by the fact that men are sinners <laughs> and they don't tend to, you know, play those things out in neat little ways that we want to argue that they're doing. I, I just know that what Paul is telling me, he's building a comprehensive case that eventually he gets to Romans chapter 30 where he says no man seeks after God and, you know, they are vile, they come out of the mother's womb speaking lies, there's poison of asps under their tongues. And on and on and on and on, we're familiar with that little text that he takes a lot from, you know, Psalms and various Old Testament passages. And he's telling us, look, you know, you're, you know, you guys are, you claim to have these, you know, this morality, but in reality, both of you are condemned because you're sinners. That's why you both need the gospel. And he, he's, he, you can try to argue with someone all you want about reality, but it just, you know, the sinner is going to kick against that because they have, you know, they have an invested interest in not recognizing who God is because then it's going to topple their little castle they've built and it's going to upend their, you know, their reality <laughs> because now they're going to have to be submitted to the board. If you're going to apply those passages across the board, then you have to do so consistently. And Romans 1 specifically says... Uh, for their women exchange the natural function of that which is unnatural, the same way also the men abandon the natural function of the woman and burn their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then he goes on to list a plethora of other sins. Uh, and so unless you're willing to say every single person, uh, every single unbeliever has given in to every single one of these sins, then there may well, be a, given in the most deeper going mm-hmm. on in these passages than just a blanket statement of, Everybody does this. So Aristotle certainly wasn't a Christian uh, and certainly didn't come to the conclusion of the theistic God. But the things he did understand about what must be some sort of ultimate cause doesn't mean that what he said was false. Just because he wasn't a Christian. And well, that's he because he's an image bearer of God and he discovered those things. I don't have a problem sure. with You know, it's just, it's like with any... But, you know, he was also a pagan who had some very deeply troubling personal issues and 
you know, and probably was involved in homosexual sexuality to some degree, as well as no, I kind of think very, you it, but that's a different <laughs> that's a different topic. Yeah, no, but it just but he but his views of God were bizarro. I mean, they weren't, and you know, so while he might we might recognize, hey, he's you know recognize something that's true because he's an image bearer of God, and he recognizes mm-hmm. that um, these things are true. That doesn't mean that. You know, somehow there's, um, I mean, it just doesn't mean that there's going to be some kind of, you know, separate, you know, realities over here and, you know, God's over here and we have to deal with the reality first apart from, you know, dealing with who God is. I mean, I, I don't know, maybe we're kind of maybe talking past each other. <laughs> maybe so, but I, possibly, but I, I think, I mean, you keep asserting this. And this immediate well, knowledge and all it's, this stuff. But well, I that's asserted it not because it's in what, the scriptures. That's why I assert it. I right. mean, wouldn't and, you agree? It, yeah, I do agree. That's why I, that's why I keep saying, Paul says, from the things that are made, we understand that God exists and his, his eternal power and divine mm-hmm. nature, his invisible attributes have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. Okay, now who's his eyes? Who's he talking to? When he makes that that comment, who do you think he's talking to? Who is the everyone we we, we recognize? Who is this we that he's making comment about? Right. Well, it it usually argues that that's all unbelievers, which is my point, that if if that is the case, then you have to apply that to uh, the same when he says all the women. Uh, or why, why, why do you draw that conclusion though? I don't understand why you're you make that leap. I always, all I see that is him saying that this is uh, you know he's building a case about as men have gotten away from God, ultimately it kind of spirals down in societies where you have this you know gross wickedness, which we have seen historically demonstrated over and over again. We've seen played out right now in our own society. Uh, now that, I'll, I'll stop collapse. you there because I absolutely, I absolutely agree with you. I think that is the general point he's making. But yeah, but those, but I he's not saying that, that we go from that general point to taking the passage of suppressing the truth and unrighteousness to this blanket statement that every, you know, the whole illustration of everyone's uh, holding the beach ball under the water because they're doing all they can to suppress the truth they know in their hearts. What? No, it's. People suppress the truth and unrighteousness to various degrees, and they understand the invisible attributes and eternal power and divine nature of God from things that are made to various degrees. That's why we communicate with people and do as Paul says in yeah. Corinthians 10, 5, and tear down arguments in every high-minded thing raised up against yeah. the knowledge of God, and we tear down bad arguments by making good arguments. And I yeah, think you're, you're it's, arguing just it's like John Frame when you say here that. The good arguments are based from effect to cause. Uh, Fred, no, go no, ahead and take a minute to respond. Uh, let, let's, let, let Fred respond. Take a minute to respond, Fred. And then uh, is it Adam's question for Fred or the other way around here? Uh, I think uh, it's Fred's question. question. Um, well, I was – you're basically – you know, in my opinion, you're sounding like a lot of the – you know, a lot of the profs and presuppositionalists that I've ever known, because you're trying, you're 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 recognizing, um, you know, that, the, that what we recognize is that I, I believe men live according to 
you know, the way God's created them. I guess what we're having an issue with is what is the grounding for that? Is it you're saying it's reality and and I don't think you're trying to say that that's somehow disconnected or divorced from God the creator, whereas I'm saying it is reality, but it's that way because God created it to be so. So our interaction and our engagement with the world has to do with the fact that because sinners live in God's world, that's why we can engage them. They may not recognize that because of the blindness of the hearts, as it says in Ephesians, and that they're under God's wrath and all of those other things, and that there's and their minds are darkened. But, you know, through the help of the Holy Spirit and bringing to bear the Christian faith on that, they're going to, you know, that's what God uses to convert them, you know, to bring them to the saving knowledge of the truth. Okay, so now right. it's my yeah. turn to um, to ask questions. Yeah. Is that the yeah. idea? Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yes, it is. Yep, go right so ahead. We have like 100,000. Um, okay, so Wait. let me ask this one. Am I good? I'm very good. I thought I heard something. Um, yeah, what, yeah. Is it is it Adam? Is it your turn or is it Fred's? No, it's no, Fred. He asked. Okay, okay. Um, Never mind the moderator was, over here. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to ask you what role do you think scriptures play in shaping your methodology? <clears throat> and, and just what, okay. what, where is the where does where does where does the scriptures? And, and I'll ask you why I say that. It's been just my experience, <laughs> I want to use that word, uh, listening to um, most of the popular radio hosts and individuals who have apologetic-oriented, um, you know, programs tend to be in your camp or they fall in your way of doing things or at least thinking about stuff. And um, I'm just, it just seems like there's a diversion to want to stay away from the Bible, and whereas I'm like, look, we're Christians, that should be what you bring to the forefront. That's what God has promised that he's going to use to, you know, convince unbelievers. Um, so I'm just kind of con- curious as to where you start with, how, you, how, does, how does the Bible, how does the theology rightly exegeted and all of that kind of come together in your apologetic methodology? Okay. Um, well, I think it's, I think it plays a bit into confusion, I think, was part of the problem with our last interchange. Uh, and, by the way, if I get excited, just know it's excited. It's not anger or anything like that. Just passion. <laughs> um, uh, <clears throat> and sometimes that doesn't convey well over the phone or anything like that. Um, I think part of the confusion is the confusion of epistemology, how we know something versus ontology. That something is the case. And, and so with apologetics, we're talking – more um, epistemology, how we come to know these things that lead to our ontological ontological conclusions of that this is the case. And just to clarify, when I'm talking about reality, for the most part, at least as a starting point, I'm just talking about sensible reality. Uh, Obviously, reality as such, uh, God is uh, the author of, and uh, I guess dare we say, Included as part of, loosely speaking. Um, so I just mean sensible reality when I'm talking about our, our starting point for apologetics. Um, but this actually goes right along with the question I had for you. So maybe we can tackle both together and uh, yeah, you'll sure. refer to one stone, so to speak. Um, so it really depends on what you mean, whether you mean in the sense of 
do I get my apologetic methodology from the Bible, as in is classical apologetics, how to do this, spelled out in the scriptures? Uh, so to that question, uh, I would say uh, it's not spelled out verbatim, but much like the Trinity, when you uh, conglomerate all the evidence, I think this is the best uh, approach from what we see. Uh, and the the um, uh, importance that sense experience and, and uh, sensible evidence and that sort of thing is given uh, in the scriptures, uh, the way Paul uh, talks with folks many times in, in the New Testament, just like we kept talking about Romans 1 over and over, and coming to know God uh, through what has been made, coming to know the existence of God through what has been made, those sorts of things. Now, if you mean the question in the sense of where does the Bible fall within the classical apologetics argument, and how is it used within the, the course of doing apologetics, um, there I would say uh, it has a specific role, which I alluded to at the very beginning uh, when I was explaining classical apologetics, in that the goal of classical apologetics is, is to first lay a foundation upon which someone has reason to believe the Bible is authoritative and trustworthy. Uh, and so we would argue that you can't simply assume that and start with that any more than we would give a Muslim credence and uh, ear to what they have to say simply because they're quoting the Quran. Well, I don't find the Quran authoritative or even historically reliable, much less something upon which I should build uh, my life and uh, my faith. Uh, and, and so classical apologetics tries to provide that foundation first by showing uh, the truth exists and is knowable and the, uh, explaining the law of non-contradiction, the opposite of true is false, uh, and then arguing for the existence of God, not just some God, not just some probable God, but the necessary conclusion is that a theistic God necessarily exists with a certain nature that has to be the case for just necessarily from the conclusion of the arguments, therefore miracles are possible, then we can look at is the Bible first accurately translated and that what we read today was actually what was written, and secondly, is it, accurate, is it an accurate translation of truth, of what actually happened? And, and so then we can show that, yes, that is the case, yes to both of those questions, it is accurately translated, and it is, uh, a translation and a co or actually copied and translated, I should say, and it is uh, an accurate copy of truth of what actually happened, and so that's when we start appealing uh, to the Bible as, as evidence, uh, or or as I guess I should say, um, um, pieces of our apologetic puzzle, so to speak. Uh, so then we can see that within. Uh, the Bible, Jesus claims to be God. Uh, we can see that he proved to be God via various miracles. Interesting that, that Jesus provided reasons for people to believe in uh, his claims. Uh, and, and then we show that ultimately he proved to be God via the resurrection, and we have ample evidence for that. And so we've already concluded that God exists with this certain nature. Well, if Jesus is God, we know already that he can't lie, that God is truth itself. So anything Jesus says is true, we know from this accurate copy of a trustworthy text, uh, we call the Bible, 
that Jesus said the Bible is the word of God and anything opposed to it must be false. Therefore, based on the law of non-contradiction, which we've already talked about, we can conclude that Christianity as a whole is true and anything opposed to it necessarily uh, is false. And once we've done that, uh, well, then we can you know, have recourse to, to appeal to the Bible for all sorts of things, doctrine and, and all these other things. But uh, when I'm talking with someone who doesn't even believe God exists in the first place, whether they have to repress knowledge or not, whatever the case, currently they don't believe that God exists, well, then appealing to a word of God is going to do little good in their minds because they can't, there, there can't be a word from God if there's not a God to give a word. Uh, and if it's a Muslim or someone who appeals to a different, uh, quote-unquote, holy book as their authority, then simply appealing to another authority gives them no reason uh, to believe that my authority is more authoritative than the one they claim. Uh, so that that's kind of the basis of, of how the Bible works within classical apologetics. So in your thinking, then, as a you know, as someone who's trying to come approach this from a as a believer, you know, when I'm interacting with whoever the Jehovah Witness or you know the Muslim, which I've talked with tons of those guys before. Um, mm-hmm. You're taking it as you're. It seems like to me that your the Bible kind of comes in, you know, comes down a little bit after you've tried to go through all the other little steps and finally get to the scriptures. Whereas it seems like my from my position, I'm coming, I'm taking God at His word that it alone is going to be the convincing thing for any individual, and you know, talk. I, I try to bring that in as as I can, just when they find out I'm a Bible-believing Christian, they're going to, you know, their first um, reaction is like, oh, really? Well, tell me about that. And as we, you know, talk about the scriptures and they try to bring the gospel. This is what Jesus said. This is what, you know, the apostles taught. And, and kind of go from there. Um, and, uh, let me ask you this question, then, because this is a kind of a, there's a piggyback on that. As you talked about the three levels, I think you were saying Richard Howe has that. Uh, sort of that little methodology where he talks starts with philosophy that eventually gets to the evidence of God and then the Christianity. I mean, where are you seeing philosophy as some kind of a separate authority from the Word of God, or how does the philosophy, you know, come in conjunction with the with the scriptures? Sure, great question. Um, so let me let me answer with a question: um, Can the Bible contradict itself? No. So you're appealing to the law of non-contradiction as an authority over the Bible? Yes, because God has told him, told us that he cannot lie in his word. I mean, that's what it says in multiple yeah, but that's, places. <laughs> but that's circular. So Why is that, that that's circular? Like the, that's, well, that's like the State Farm commercial, you know, where the, I don't know if you've seen it, where the, the girl walks out and the guy's diagramming his accident on his phone. And uh, she talks, says something about, uh, oh, did you know some such and such a fact? And uh, uh, she says, where'd you hear that? To the internet. And so, oh, well, you know, anything that's on the internet has to be true. Well, where'd you hear that? The internet. Uh, and obviously, it's a joke because what well, you're, you're appealing to the very thing you're trying to, to prove. So saying the Bible. Well, that would be like saying and, the laws of logic are. Uh, you have to appeal to the laws of logic, the laws of logic, in order to show that the laws of logic are provable 
I, you know, no, that, God's that's created. What that? That's what it means to be. That's what it means to be a first principle. Uh, so it's self-evident. Well, I ground, nothing... I ground the first principle in the fact that it's the character of God who's revealed Himself to mankind. I, and, yeah, again, you know, he's, he's given us his word, and he's told us right. that it's not whether or not. But I, I think sometimes the, the the circular argument only goes so far because it's it's you know everybody argues but, in a circle. So some there's got to be some first your first fault. principle is like okay, well, what made that the authority to start? Right, well, but you're you know using I mean? epistemology and ontology again. So you just said you know, why, yeah, but I why ground. Do you, uh, because you said I ground the laws of logic in God. That's right. ontology. That, that's why something exists. Okay, okay. that's a okay. different question than how we come to know something. No, I think so when they're I say the fundamentally related to one another because of God's I didn't say they weren't. I didn't say they weren't related, but they're two different categories of things. So when I well, say why do you the, why do you the, make that why do you separate them out like that like they doctor right. well, just position one of Yeah, I'm trying to tell you. So the okay. when I say the, the <laughs> when I say the law of non contradiction is self evident, I'm making an epistemological claim. How I come to okay. know that, right? And so I okay, know yeah. that sensible reality. I abstract that from my interaction with sensible reality. I know you agree with this because you wrote it in your blog that kids mm-hmm. come to know that this is soft, this is hard, this is hot, this is cold. And they intuitively, just because of the way their minds work, abstract right. the principle known as the law of non-contradiction from their right. interactions with sensible reality. That's an epistemological claim, how we come to understand that. Yeah, that it's, 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 the laws of non-contradiction exist as, the, as a first principle of thought and being. The reason they exist is because being exists. And the conclusion of my argument for God is that he is existence itself. But that is why they exist. That's an ontological claim. So there are two different aspects uh, of talking about the law of non-contradiction. So I'm not separating them. So why is it it circular to argue to say that it's wrong? Why is it circular to say that if you – you know, your epistemology is going to flow from the character of God, just like you articulated, because he's, got, he's revealed himself. So we have right. to go from this concept that he has made himself known. He is, he's made himself known. If he's told us this about himself, why do we want to say, I believe, why do you think it's, it's circular to say he's told us he does not lie? Right. right <laughs> I'm right, going right. by what the ultimate creator says. That's my first <clears throat> principle. Is his revelation right? But you're you're equivocating on first on first principle here. So it's back to that how, something it, that I, I just something I'm not that, seeing how I'm equivocating. Can you? Well, right. Well, I'm trying to explain it to you. So there, it, it's the difference again that we talked about earlier in something that's self-evident to us versus something that's self-evident in itself. So God, as being itself, therefore is knowledge itself and knows himself perfectly. It's self-evident mm-hmm. to him that he exists and that he is being itself. But that's not self-evident to us. And if you want to Actually, just appeal to the Bible, right, but I'm, I'm appealing to the scriptures, which you keep wanting to come back to. Scriptures mm-hmm. clearly, clearly, clearly say we know God exists 
and his invisible attributes through what has been made. That is the same thing as saying it's not self-evident to us that God exists. It is uh, it, it is something we come to know via things. Okay. So sorry, I have some uh, kids knocking on my door. Yeah, now. no, I got that too. <laughs> Um, and screaming, Daddy, Daddy. So that's always fun. Yes, yes. Uh, so, oh, and so it's great when you're thing. in the bathroom, isn't it? When you're oh, absolutely. by yourself absolutely. there. I think that's even the greatest. Anyway, go on, go on. I'm sorry. <laughs> no worries. Uh, so the fact that the law of non-contradiction is a first principle, when using this in the, in the, the, the way the, that it's used in the philosophical realm, means that it is self-evident to us. And as such, there, there's not an argument that can be given that A is not non-A. That's just the way reality is, and we recognize that. We don't argue to that. So that's self-evident to us. But since God no. is not self-evident to us, as the scriptures say, we argue to that fact. Therefore, it can't. God can't be a first principle of knowledge for us. We Even though he says he is, in like Genesis yeah. 1, 1, when he says, in the beginning, God created. I mean, that statement is filled with all kinds of major worldview-shaping truth, that God is there, he is, he's spoken, he has uh, created, and he has revealed himself. And you, you, there's there's no room for atheism. There's no room for other gods. There's no room for sure. anything yep. else. And so, Adam, go ahead. Uh, that, go, go ahead, Fred. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off, Fred. Fred, well, go no, ahead I'm and kind of, finish kind of, your just, your question. Well, I, well, I just Adam, think that there's like this. Oh yeah, I'm just saying that I think that there's, you know, I, this idea that you have to sort of come to know that when you know God is when I when I see it says He's clearly made. The idea there is that everyone knows these things to be self-evident. They they know that because they're created in God's image, and they you know what I've always been saying here. So when I come to first principles, I ground those first principles in what God has revealed or told me, which is the nature of His revelation. So okay, you know, well, I trust still, His. Yeah, Adam, go ahead. You're, you're, uh, Adam, take two minutes. Take two sure. minutes and respond to Adam, and then we need to move to your question, Fred. Okay. Um, well, again, you're just you're just repeating what you've already said, which I've already explained why that that is problematic. So, I, I, if, I if you don't understand what I'm saying, I, I don't know I don't know how else to uh, to explain that to you. But um, my my question really relates to exactly what we're talking about. So, really, the conversation will just continue. Uh, but but my question simply is, why should an unbeliever take the Bible as true and authoritative? as opposed to the Quran or the Book of Mormon or, or any other alleged holy book? Well, I would say, well, because it's God's word. <laughs> but you're going to say that that's But that's the very question. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, the um, well, look, I, the, the reason why I said they should take him, yeah, that's what I would tell them. I mean, that's, I know that sounds simplistic and silly and maybe uh, illogical. But that's I the mean, question they're asking perspective. <laughs> What's that? That that well, is the question asking. they're asking you. 
Well, they, they have asked me that. I've been asked that lots of times, and I've told them because God has told us this is the only way to get saved, told us that in, in this word he has revealed himself. Now, usually they all recoil by that and, well, you know, he commanded rape of slave women in Deuteronomy. Okay, well, we could talk about that, you know, but right now it's telling you here that it is Jesus Christ the man. This is where he's revealed in, 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 in the Holy Scripture, and it is he is the one who gives life and death, and he has called you to repentance. And, you know, we, we talk to them about the law of God and why they're lawbreakers. Hey, hey and, you know, it's Fred, a, Fred, if, Fred, if you don't mind, just uh, as, as a moderator, just for a point of clarification. So if the Muslim says you should believe the Quran because the Quran's the word of God um, instead of the Bible being the word of God, h- how is it you respond uh, to that? I'm just, just, just for clarification. Well, I would, uh, is, was it's that, just a fact that... Well, usually the way I've responded to that in the past, and it just upsets them, is that it's it's like, look, the, the, the Islam claims to be based upon Scripture. What is in Scripture does not match what your what is revealed to us in the Quran. In the Quran, in fact, there's a lot of departure from what you know, and, and you know, and usually they're like, well, no, that's because the Jews have corrupted it. That's what they go to. I'm like, well, okay, but you're if you're going to tell me that as a person of the book, obviously there had to have been a book there that was uncorrupted, as you claim. And what I'm seeing here is that there's, you know, historically there's no, you know, none of that stuff is laying around still in any kind of manuscript form. And you're telling me to believe a revelation that came, what would be equivalent to six or 700 years later? You know, that's Hang on, let me stop you right there. Let me stop you right there. I mean, would that so, not, would that not mean, be... You mean you're you're appealing to evidence and the well, yeah, of course. Uh, I would appeal to philosophical understandings of reality. Why don't you just yes. take their word for it? Why don't I take their word for it? You expect well, them to take your word for it through the power of the Holy Spirit, but why don't well, you just take their word for it? Well, because they're well, there. I don't know of any claim in the Quran that's going to tell you that you need to preach. You know, you preach. You know, these things, and you're going to be Save. It's, just, it's more of a submission thing. Right, it tells you to blow yourself up in your promised paradise. So, I mean, why not believe that? Well, that's the, the, the Hadith, but I know what you, I know what you mean. Um, well, look, there, there. I'm just going to go back on appeal to my authority. Uh, I see the scriptures as my authority. It's what God is. But giving they me don't. To that's be. the question. They they don't. They don't see it as their authority. Well, so why should they I'm believe like, you? Oh, okay, I, I leave that in God's hands. I don't try to convince them. I can show them, look, your, what you claim is revelation does not match up with this previous revelation. Usually if you talk to him long enough, he's like, wouldn't you think that if God is consistent, that what he talks, as he's revealed himself, you see the consistency in the whole of the Old and New Testament, but when you come to the Koran or even the Book of Mormon, they got to compel, they got they have to appeal to conspiracy theories and things that go beyond the reality that we've been talking about that are not you just kind of left wondering really you just where is this where well, has this so, happened in history so you're you're appealing to reality but yeah. you're also appealing to their understanding of god but their understanding of god would say that god is actually capricious and if allah decided to be inconsistent and change his mind about something he, exactly. It's called the, the doctrine of abrogation. He's perfectly free <laughs> to do so, that. And that's, so that's their what I would say. Look, 
And that's why I would tell him, like, look, your scriptures claim to depend upon previous on the Bible. Why is it actually just the Old Testament? God, God is. What say it again? They they might they may appeal to portions of the Old Testament, but certainly not the Bible as a whole. Um, Well, it just depends on which ones you talk to. The guys that I knew from Pakistan that I worked with in college. I mean, they understood that the Old and New Testament were, you know, they believed in all of these things as prophets. And, you know, Jesus, you have the gospel well, there. Jesus is just, a prophet. Right, right. But they wouldn't, they wouldn't, they would just, they rejected what, and when I would point to them, you know, and of course this time I'm kind of this dumb kid, didn't really know a lot, but I knew enough to say, well, it says in John 1, 1 that, in the beginning God was the word, and then God created, you know, point them to these kind of passages. Oh, well, Jesus corrupted that, or Paul corrupted that. Well, where do you mm-hmm. get that? You know? And it, it, mm-hmm. it's, so you're doing classical well, yeah, apologetics. Well, <laughs> I, I guess you could say that. Welcome to the team, man. Welcome to the team. I told you I'd convert you, Fred. I told you I'd convert you. <laughs> But that's that's assuming that you know I understand that there's these presuppositional guys like you don't use evidence. But look, I'm not going to convince him. He, he's going to walk away from that. So I'm not going to look to that as some kind of appealing thing. I'm I'm interpreting that evidence, if you will, through a consistent understanding of Christian theology as it's exegeted from Scripture. I mean, I, I have no problem talking with anyone about evidence. I, one of my okay. first encounters was an atheist woman that I gave Josh McDowell's evidence to demand the verdict to her. She gave it back to me like in a week saying, you know, this guy is, is full of bunk and everything. And I want to, you know, he, there's nothing compelling about this. Had all of these reasons why he was wrong. You know, mm-hmm. and well, look, you know, what she needs is a heart change. That's what I need to kind of focus on is why is, is talking to her about her need for Christ. Your, your marriage right. is in tatters because you're a sinner and your husband's a sinner and your three-year-old is going to be in this divorced family. I mean, you know, and that's what really began to talk to her. Sure, sure. But really uh, I, the story. heart, as R.C. Sproul says, the heart can't embrace what the mind doesn't think is true. So we got to have... Well, that's because R.C. Sproul is inconsistent. God bless his heart. <laughs> bless him. <laughs> All right. Talk but for he's, uh, but uh, related, related to this, then... So we, we, you talked about the nature of God. I talked about the, the Muslims' understanding of the nature of God. And, and so if we just appeal to the Bible, let's just talk about the Bible, then, all right, so we have these passages over here that talk about God having eyes and arms and legs and ears and hands mm-hmm. and all these mm-hmm. things, God having a body. Then it says over here God's a spirit, and it says God, my, God doesn't change his mind. He doesn't change, like, his shifting shadows. Over here it talks about God repenting, and he regrets this and mm-hmm. that, and he test these mm-hmm. people to know if they know these things. So using the Bible alone, how do you get a proper understanding of who God is? Well, you would have to do a incomplete, and you're putting together all of God's revelation. What's revealed, and obviously the angel of the Lord, when we began to kind of look through and trace through the history of God's revelation of himself, you've got this angel of the Lord figure that's a pre-incarnate, Appearance of Christ. He's someone who's worshipped. He's someone who's who, does, who um, claims deity for himself. You know, and you have these appearances in Ezekiel and Daniel. You know, of this same being who's sitting upon this throne. 
John sees this being that sits on a throne. I, I don't disagree that God has revealed himself in human form because that's, you know, how what he created and he's revealed himself. Um, but you're going to have to you go through all of Scripture and you look at um, any, you know, as you're looking at the whole of what is revealed of Christ, you see that he makes claims of deity, that he applies Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah who was seen as a divine okay, figure that's a, to that's himself. That's a different question than what I'm asking. That, that's not that's not really what I was getting at. Well, okay, well, just ask, using wait, wait. the Bible alone, if it says over here God has a body, and over here it says God doesn't have a body, mm-hmm. how do you do you just embrace the contradiction? Well, so now we're back to the Bible can contradict itself, or how do you adjudicate those views? Well, it just that have to have some specific passage, but I, I know what you mean. We can look at the context of where that, you know, when he talks about he doesn't have by God, God the Spirit. And we understand later on in the New Testament that the Trinity is being revealed to us more clearly. God Father, if you've seen the Son, who's a physical being, you've seen the Father, who's not a physical. All right, being. Let me give you a more let me give you a more simple example. Because again, okay. I mean, how do you understand that? So Jesus is the bread, the bread of life. Yeah, right. Is he made of flour and water? Well, that's an Old Testament reference. To the fact, uh, to the manna in the wilderness, and where you have the so whole, Jesus where is manna? God providing for Himself, and He claimed He uses that picture. I mean, there you're going to have to kind of go through and just talk about how God has no, but uh, my, my question is His revelation. Simpler. My question is much, much, much simpler: Is Jesus made of flour and water? Well, of course not. How do you know? He uses. I mean, there's. How, say that again. How do I know that? How do you know? Well, well, because you look at where that reference there in, um, well, and I'm trying to remember where that is. Right? In, in the book of John is making reference back to earlier things in the Jewish history when God provided for them, you know, manna out of heaven. And he's making so reference to that. Over look, I am, I am a deified with that God. Say it again. He, Jesus is left over. Manna from heaven that's that's been around for five thousand years and somebody kept well, tucked away in the basket somewhere. Yeah, or... you're trying to you're building up a straw man for that. No, no, I'm, I'm asking. I think I'm asking a very simple question. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I how do you yeah, know, I know Jesus you, is not a? Well, look, I would just Jesus have to take you to the scriptures and say, look, you're going to the Old Testament. You see that the by that that in John six, he's making reference to this event that happened in Israel's history. And he's making these allusions to these pictures of who God was as the provider and as the one who was a creator and sustained his people. I just created bread and fish out of thin air. Fish that never swam, bread that was never flour and wheat or anything like that. I gave it to you and I'm feeding you. Can you not see that I am this God who brought you out of Egypt because I am providing just like he did these things. My bread is the, you know, the flesh. Take of my substance. He's drawing these spiritual pictures to who he is. He's calling them to. So he's drawing these spiritual pictures to who he is. And wouldn't it be much yeah. simpler to say you know that because you know what a man is, well, he did, and you know what bread what is, and you know that, because he, and you know well, that man is, is not that. bread, right? Because. As we started out with, you know 
reality, because right? Audience, you know, since for reality. Well, his audience is Jewish too, so that has something to do with it. Right, but but when well, you when you do that, when you make those distinctions, you're you're doing philosophy. You're not just well. Yeah, I'm not afraid Bible. of philosophy as long as this philosophy is comes after you've done good systematic theology. You've got to have but some my point is it can. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. You were doing philosophy before you understood that Jesus wasn't bread. It's because you know what a man is and because you know what bread is that oh, you yeah, can understand that this is a spiritual illustration of a, a a truth about Jesus. So you had to do well, yeah, philosophy that's before how God you came to the Bible. But that doesn't make the Bible any less authoritative. The question is, what is the Bible authoritative about? And it's authoritative about the Christian life and practice, the gospel. That's what is convincing for all. That's what, you, when you mentioned earlier, is convincing uh, for for all the people. The gospel is what is what you're convincing the people of, not uh, that God exists and all this stuff. So the Bible isn't meant to be an apologetics textbook. But we do. It's this not meant to be an apologetic textbook. <laughs> we do philosophy it says in, in first, all these it things. First Peter is a tell. It's a that you have your, you have to apologetics. start with some. Uh, what's that? Does the do apologetics? Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. My point is, you you're doing philosophy and all these things before you're even able to understand what. Well, the Bible but my philosophy. Means. I would say the difference is, is our my philosophy is where is our philosophy coming from. Is it coming from reality, a robust reality, reality? Well, reality or a robust understanding of Scripture, God's revelation that tells us <laughs> how to think right about the reality. That's what. Oh, that, all right, I'm gonna throw it over to you. Guys. <laughs> anyway, all right, gentlemen, we're, we're going we're uh, going around in circles now. <laughs> it's been a good discussion. I have immensely enjoyed it and uh fred you're going to put this on uh the grace to you uh radio show for the next few weeks oh, i'm sure our audience <laughs> would just love <laughs> i'm sure they would I've got a my, my, email you address is, my email address is a tucker at ses.edu if anybody wants to send me any hate mail but that'll be fine <laughs> you can fred reach me up hate mail blog. so yeah, no, you get, you get enough hate mail for kind of snippy, snarky blog posts. Maybe that's what I'll do. And, you know, no, I won't. I'm not going to do that. I'll tell you no, what. I uh, Fred, Look, take, I think these take two are minutes. Important, like you said. Oh, go ahead. What? Well, I, I said I think yeah, you're for, right. I mean, these issues are important. My 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 passion is that we're going to build our apologetic methodology on scripture and how we go about engaging lost people and how we um, in, interact with world and reality and all of those things, you know, I want it to be uh, as, as as cohesive, you know, uh, understanding of systematic theology as we can. We want to we want to derive yeah. that from what God has told us about himself, about man, and about these things. That's my goal. I'm sure that's probably Adam's um, views as well. I mean, that's his passion as well. And um, obviously it comes down to just how we understand some of these concepts and, you know, what does the Bible. We'll have to come back sometime and do an exegesis of Romans 1 and, you know, see if it's <laughs> saying what he's claiming it's saying <laughs> or whatever. Yeah, well, you know, let me say, you know, Fred, and for the people listening, you know, I, I don't doubt your – I don't do not doubt your motives or your intentions or your love for the lost. 
at all. I mean, it's come through very clearly. I think you're you're trying to honor the scriptures. Um, I think you're trying to uh, to honor the Bible, and you want to see people come to the Lord. So, you know, I don't um, I don't doubt your uh, intentions at all on that. And uh, Adam, take uh, take uh, two minutes or so. Give us your closing thoughts, and uh, and we will be done. Yeah, sure. Well, Fred, it, it was a lot of fun, man. I really do appreciate it. It's yeah. going to be fun to do like every Friday night over a cup of hot chocolate or something. Just well, you know, if you're in L.A., come out and we'll go, there you we'll go. go hey, somewhere and we'll do it. Yeah, man. Yeah, man. Come out to the so show. I really do appreciate it. And, uh, <laughs> and Devin, thank you. Uh, thank you for, for hosting it. Uh, you know, I am glad. Uh, I'm sure regardless of, of which side is, more uh, accurate. I'm sure there are many things we both have incorrect, but I'm glad that in spite of all that, God can still use our people efforts for his glory and uh, to, to bring uh, lost souls into a saving relationship with him. And uh, that is the ultimate goal. And of course, we do want to do that in a way uh, that is, uh, I think, both uh, philosophically robust and, and corresponding to reality and in a way that honors God to, to the best of our ability. So uh, yeah. I pray that we'll both continue seeking those things. Hey, Fred, sure, take 60 seconds and uh, tell us tell us if, if, you, if you would like uh, as to why uh, Master Seminary is a place people should uh, <laughs> look at, uh, possibly going and enrolling in, and then afterwards, Adam, take a minute, talk uh, about SES. Yeah, the, basically, uh, Master Seminary exists to train men to be pastors. Um, I think we can all agree, and I think Adam even kind of pointed out earlier, I would agree with him, there is a lot of bad thinking among Christians and in the churches. And our goal and our objective has always been to train men, a little motto is, is as if you know their lives depend upon it. And, uh, you know, uh, there you're going to have um, – you know, you're going to be exposed to good understanding of uh, theology, the exegesis of the text. You're going to get into Greek and Hebrew and break apart how to handle God's word so you can proclaim that and teach that to a congregation and make disciples of the nations. That's kind of it in a nutshell. Um, and I'm not even being paid for this, man. I should be paying some money for this. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> All right, Adam, take 60 seconds and uh, talk about SES. Sure. I guess technically I am being paid for this, but I would do it anyway. <laughs> so, um, so SES Southern Evangelical Seminary, really our our, our desire is, is to train people with a uh, systematized and cohesive uh, philosophy and apologetic and uh, theology that ultimately glorifies God and serves the purpose of evangelism. So we focus on apologetics, philosophy, uh, biblical studies, and, and evangelism and have undergrad, grad, doctoral level degrees. Uh, you can do it on campus, live stream online. Uh, some classes are recorded online. You can do it uh, you know, whatever you need to. Uh, I will say we're having an open house uh, virtually and on campus, so you can stream it or come on campus on April 5th. Uh, so you can go to ses.edu uh, for that information, and you actually have a chance to uh, attend uh, one of our classes from one of our top professors uh, that evening. You can, be again, be there in person. You can live stream that class as well. So ses.edu uh, if you're interested in the open house. 
Mm. All right, gentlemen, appreciate you guys both coming on and uh, look forward to having you both on again, uh, maybe talking about a couple different topics. So thanks again for coming hey, on. My and best until to next you. week. Hey, Devin. Go ahead, brother. Yes, my sir. My best to your wife, man. Tell your wife we're praying for her. I appreciate that, Fred. I really, really do appreciate your friendship and your kindness. So next week, friends, we'll be back with another episode of Theology Matters. So until then, God bless. See you guys. Bye-bye. God bless.